Chambers and I call the City Commission workshop meeting to order. Commissioners present are Commissioner McDowell, Commissioner Langdon, myself, Vice Mayor Stokes, and Commissioner Emmerich is absent for today. There, but we do have a quorum for this meeting. Also present are City Manager Fletcher, City Attorney Slayton, City Clerk Faust. We have Deputy Chief, Police Chief Morales back there. I thought I saw him. Yeah. And Fire Chief Titus. And I'm going to call on Mr. English to lead us in the Right, thank you. Uh, City Clerk, do we have any public comments? We do have one. Gregory Braun. Morning. My name is Gregory Braun and my wife Julie. And our concern is with the uh, rezoning on uh, off of Price between Barcelona and uh, Baker Street. We've owned a home there for 12 years now since we retired. We live there full time, and uh, it's just crazy what's gone on. We just found out about the rezoning plans and. Uh, Several years ago, we were able to buy a lot next to us. And on that lot, there was a row of palm trees I dug out of the brush and cleaned up. And then the state forestry department comes along and just plows all of them down. And then a few years later, we had the hurricane. So Barcelona in front of our house is underwater and Baker behind our house is underwater. And then uh, last year, we find out about the rezoning. And it's uh, just crazy, you know, how things go. We just really don't want to see the neighborhood rezoned. We just like it the way it is. And we've got 30 neighbors that most all that we've talked to want it the way it is. And that's my story. And there's 30 more in the neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Okay. All right. We'll move on to presentations. First up is uh, it's 24-0020 Natural Resources Division Introduction and 2024 Recycling Campaign Presentation. These are two different presentations? Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, our Director of Development Services, Elena Ray, is going to provide a presentation. This was not attached to your agenda item. We'll provide it to you uh, as soon as the meeting concludes. It was inadvertently left off of the attachments for the item. So her agenda item is going to go through and introduce, introduce the new team. Uh, I guess I don't have to say how excited we are to have this team and division here in place now. It's been talked about for um, quite some time since last summer, and now it's actually here and getting off the ground, and we're, we're very excited. So I'll turn it over to Director Ray to lead us through the presentation. Good morning. As the city manager said, we are so excited, um, and I have have the privilege of introducing this team to you today. Um, obviously, this is a, a two-part presentation. I'll handle this first part, um, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Public Works. Um, 
First, I want to introduce you to our new natural resources manager. His name is Stephan Califf. Uh, he has a wealth of knowledge and experience. Uh, we took him from Sarasota County, so I'm quite proud of that. Uh, <laughs> he, he was uh, environmental supervisor for both Sarasota County and prior to that, Charlotte County. So he's very familiar with both of our county, both of the counties that we are uh, on the border of and um, very familiar with this area. He's also worked with DEP, so he has the experience not only from the local level but the state level. Uh, and his education is in uh, obviously environmental issues. Uh, Liz Blessing is our new environmental planner three. Um, Ms. Blessing uh, comes to us from South Florida Water Management District. Uh, where she was an environmental analyst there. Uh, she also has experience as a watershed specialist with Rookery um, Bay National Estuary. I can't talk this morning. Not enough coffee. Uh, Estuarine Research Preserve. And she's an adjunct instructor on sustainability at FGCU. Uh, so we are, are very happy to have her. She's also a Florida master naturalist. Uh, so a, a wealth of experience there. Erin um, Zimmerman is one of our new environmental specialists. He also comes from Sarasota County, so uh, they wow. will have some positions posted if uh, <laughs> anyone's looking for environmental jobs. Uh, he's also worked with Florida Fish and Wildlife, so he has that state-level experience as well. Uh, and then he has some prior experience uh, in another state. Joseph Mansuetti uh, is our other environmental specialist. He comes from Charlotte County. So we uh, got one from Charlotte County as well. He was an uh, environmental land management specialist with them. Uh, he, was all, he also has uh, outside experience in private consulting with uh, a firm uh, as an ecologist. Uh, and if he's got um, University of Florida. He's a University of Florida boy, so he, uh, he's, he's a local. And then he's also a certified professional wetland scientist. And then we have our two arborists who have been with us. Um, we have Sean Ruff and Jeremy Rogus, uh, who are in the duties of Arborist. And we had hoped to be able to make our announcement this morning for our Urban Forester, uh, but we should know about that next week as far as a starting date. So um, looking forward to, to that announcement. Um, moving into some of our priorities for this year, and these are really based off of what we've heard from the commission and the public. Um, we, we first, we want to start with a community listening tour. And um, we will talk about uh, a little more detail on that in just a moment. Uh, a tree canopy assessment, which has been a topic of discussion for quite some time. A citywide tree planting plan. Context-sensitive development, which we are going to um, package into um, understandable uh, language for mm -hmm. our public, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Identification of potential conservation lots. We're going to work with Public Works um, to see if maybe we can find lots that will serve a dual purpose, providing access to uh, canals and, and ditches for Public Works, but also providing areas that we can um, preserve and uh, restore to a natural habitat. And then education programs are going to be a, a large part of what this division does, educating our public, our builders, um, 
our new residents coming in uh, on our protected species, native plantings, and everything that we can do uh, together to uh, conserve our environment. And then we'll also be looking at environmental sustainability program. We do have some direction from the commission that's longstanding direction regarding sustainability fees and other uh, items, and that is on our agenda as well. Regarding the community listening tour, we will we are already working with the communications team. We met with them uh, just recently on developing some details for this. We have scheduled the first one at, on February 20th at the Morgan Center, I believe, Morgan Center. Um, and that will be an interactive um, discussion with the public. We haven't gotten all the details yet, but we will provide that as we, as we get it uh, to the commission and to the public. Um, really, our, our goal on this is to obtain input from the community as far as their priorities for um, environmental initiatives and to let them know what we're doing already, what our plans are, um, and what the direction is that we've received from the commission. And then we will be providing that information back. Um, we'll, we'll have more than one um, of these listening experiences, and we will provide the input back to the commission uh, so that the commission is aware of um, the discussions that we've had. Um, we will continue to provide details as far as scheduling um, once we've worked out more of the, the schedule other than the first one on February 20th. The tree canopy assessment, uh, we are very close to identifying the software program that we would like to use and beginning the procurement process for that. Um, depending on the cost of it, it will depend on, will we'll, um, dictate the procurement process that we go through. But the one that we're looking at is very, um, has a lot of capacity for us to grow. Doesn't just measure our canopy, but would uh, measure hot spots. We would be able to, I think the resolution is down to two feet, so we can pretty much see what the leaves look like on the trees. Um, the program would allow us to track our trees, um, GPS them on, on all of our city properties, and track their health, their maintenance, uh, develop a replanting schedule, also identify gaps in our tree canopy, so and in our street trees and other areas where the city uh, would have the opportunity to plant new trees. Uh, so it's got a it's got a lot of capabilities, um, and if that's the one that we go with, we'll be doing a we'll want to do a demonstration for the commission so that you can see the the capacity that it has. Um, we are also looking at uh, what it what it would be able to do is project future scenarios. So for instance, we all know we have 40,000 lots that could be developed. If they were all clear cut, what would our canopy look like? We would have the ability to project those scenarios so that we can um, work to keep that from happening. Um, it's, a, it's a good visual. The public and many of us are visual. And so having those visuals um, would really tell a story and allow us to um, probably get more support for environmental measures. Um, we can compare it with um, the data with heat island locations, land use, flood zones, population densities. It, it's a wide range of, of capabilities that we can use this for. Um, and we can identify heritage trees, track them, uh, make sure that 
we're keeping up uh, with what their health is. Um, and as I said, we can track all of the city-owned uh, trees for their location um, and replacement schedules. Um, this, of course, is the data that we need in order to develop a, a good and thorough tree planting plan. Um, we'll use that data to design um, planting areas, to designate planting areas. Um, we're also looking at reforestation of certain city-owned properties. Um, we're already looking at locations where it would be appropriate, for instance, right now where Public Works has been mowing, but they really don't want to continue mowing there. What can we do to reforest those areas and turn them into natural areas? We, we found a couple that a um, couple of places where Public Works is, is mowing, but we've got gopher tortoises there. Um, and Public Works really doesn't need that space. The city's not using it. So we can look at reforesting it, turning it back over to a natural environment. It saves money on the Public Works side um, and provides an environmental benefit. And then we can also look at a replacement plan for dead and diseased trees um, and those at the end of their lifespan. We are seeing some effects from... Uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Ian with our tree canopy already. Um, not only the, the initial damage that the hurricane <coughs> winds caused, but also uh, they made our pine trees more susceptible to beetles, and we are seeing some um, infestation problems, and we're likely over the next couple of years to see some die-off in areas. So that's something that we want to track with this uh, program <coughs> and address in our tree planting plan. Context-sensitive development. Uh, this team will be reviewing proposed developments to identify and preserve environmentally sensitive areas and habitat. So um, assuming our, our new <coughs> code is adopted, we're working with developers to ensure that properties are not clear-cut. We've already started that with um, a developer. Um, so we're, we're, we're thinking ahead. We're, we're having those conversations now. Um, that would require that on-site uh, preservation and restoration. We're also working um, to monitor uh, approved plans for compliance. For instance, we have one um, large project here, Heron Creek, that had a management plan for 20 years. It was never followed up on. Um, this team is doing that. We do have a, um, a restoration plan in place that has been uh, approved staff has has approved and this team has already gone out and done site visits for that first phase of um, exotic removal that's been done uh, so they've gone out they've they've confirmed exotics have been removed and sprayed and um, they're going to be following up on that and we're, so what we're doing is we're looking back at other developments that may have had those same requirements that were never done and we'll be putting those um, items into place um, we're also looking at uh, conservation lots, so identify properties for potential acquisition and conservation. These would be scrub jay lots, canal lots. As I mentioned, we're working. We're going to be working with Public Works to um, identify maybe some dual purpose lots that would um, serve both an environmental purpose and a, a road drainage access um, purpose. Um, and we'll be looking at um, properties that have go for tortoises and, and those types of things. We're going to, going to reach out to our environmental partners in the community and um, work with them on, on some of these things as far as 
um, they've already got a lot of data on where some of these lots are, um, and we can look at those, that data and see if some of those lots might serve that dual purpose. Education, as I mentioned, is going to be a big uh, part of this division's work. Um, they will be working to um, identify protected species areas and working with the public to help them identify protected species and have, you know, we, have, we do have a, um, a, a reporting uh, app that people can go on and report gopher tortoises. We'd like to expand that to other protected species like scrub jays and eagles. Um, we also will be doing a lot of education for habitat restoration and right tree, right place is a big one that I know we've talked about uh, with the commission and uh, we've talked to developers about, homeowners about. We really want to get that information out um, throughout the community so that people do understand what can and should be planted in certain places. Um, we want to promote native plants and Florida-friendly landscaping. Uh, this can be done through um, not only education, but also maybe a public recognition program where um, if people plant their yards or um, have areas dedicated to um, Florida-friendly landscaping, we could have some type of a public recognition for, for that. And that's the end of the natural resources portion of this item, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Um, just really, really, are we are very excited about this team, the depth of knowledge that we've been able to um, to accumulate here with this team, and we're, we're excited to work with them. They are all very eager and motivated to uh, see this division succeed in Northport. All right, thank you. Mr. McDowell. <clears throat> Welcome. My goodness, this is like so new and innovative for our city, and I think it's been a conversation we've had as long as I've been on the board, and to have it actually come to fruition, um, finally. Welcome. A um, couple things mentioned in your presentation. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that you're going to be doing these listening tours. Um, I did not see the Environmental Advisory Board listed. And I really, really hope that you will be reaching out for, to them um, and getting yeah. some of the feedback from them. We will be. Yes. Excellent. Um, the community, when you mention community partners and stuff, I hope it's going to include like Northport Conservancy and Northport Fowl. Yes. Um, fantastic. I just wanted to make sure yes. that they were included in your list of community Absolutely. partners. Um, and the last thing, we do a tracking for gopher tortoises. It would be really helpful, I think, to do kind of a tracking of where we have champion trees and mm -hmm. heritage trees. Yes. That's the, part of the program okay. for the software that we're looking at will allow us to do that. And, and that is important. Um, even on private lots, we see, exactly. we do a lot of inspections. Our, our arborists will come to us and say, hey, we've got some nice heritage trees on these lots and they're going to be cleared. What can we do? Right. So having a way to track those and maybe even um, it, whether city is able to acquire some through our tree fund or mm -hmm. private That's partners. We want to look at doing that. That's exactly what the next part was. Absolutely. Because if there's a, a beautiful heritage or mm -hmm. even champion tree, to mm -hmm. me, the champion tree is like the premier of right. protection. You right. Know, because there's so few and far between. Mm -hmm. If we can 
purchase those properties mm -hmm. um, and, you know, using our tree fund money for that, I think would be extremely beneficial to preserve those trees because when you see one of those champion trees, it's like, wow. They do stand out. <laughs> they definitely <laughs> do. So welcome aboard. Look forward to everything that you're going to be bringing forward. And I hope when we're talking about the sustainability that we really talk about also including a fee for development. It, it doesn't have to be an astronomical fee, but an environmental sustainability mm -hmm. fee. It would be very helpful, not right. just our tree fund. Mm -hmm. So thank well, you. Well, we do have a, an expert in sustainability <clears throat> with us now, and uh, we're looking forward to all of the ideas that she will be bringing. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Um, Vice Mayor. Well, welcome aboard. Looks like you assembled a good all-star team. That's great. And this is this really is a, a realization of a long-term need for this city. So I'm, you know, personally, I'm delighted to see it happen with the growth we're going through. We definitely need a uh, a division that focuses on this. That's a cornerstone of our development, not an afterthought. So this is a great thing. I would hope, I know we're, we're poaching a little from our tree fund. This is what's kicking off this division. I'm hoping as we put together our 25 budget, we plan to put some money in there to take care of this and grow this division and see to it that it has the resources it needs to do its job. So welcome aboard. All right, Commissioner Langdon. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, keying off Vice Mayor Stokes comments, it's important that this division is focused on sustainability, that we be able to sustain it moving forward. So that's a good thing. Um, my fellow commissioners mentioned many of the things that I had on my list to make sure you were paying attention to. A um, couple other areas, and, and I don't know, this is a natural resources division, so I don't know if my comments are appropriate for your mission. Um, but I'd like us to start talking and thinking about when and how do we begin to incorporate green standards for our buildings, um, the, both city buildings and other development. We're contemplating building a new headquarters for the Northport Police Department. We should be thinking about how we incorporate green standards into that construction. Um, as well as residential and commercial development. Along the same lines, um, I'd like us to start thinking about and discussing how and when we begin planning for transitioning the city's fleet into hybrid and electric vehicles. I've had some initial conversations with staff in my one-on-ones, and I know um, in, in certain areas um, because our vehicles need to be in very rough terrain and need to be able to move through water, that the technology isn't quite there yet for some of those vehicles. But we do have other vehicles that I think we could begin thinking about transitioning them at least to hybrid. Um, anyhow, great. I also want to welcome you guys. I'm very excited uh, to see the output of this team, you're desperately needed. Um, and I suspect um, coming from different counties that you're all here because of the challenges that we're facing as a city. 
So I'm going to assume you're all high performers and, and really chomping at the bit to begin chipping away at some of our biggest environmental challenges here in the city. So I'm really excited um, to see what you guys do. Thank you. I'm all set. Okay. Um, yes, I just want to welcome all of you. I am just uh, beyond ecstatic uh, that we finally have a natural resources department. Um, I served on what was then called the Beautification and Tree Council over 20 years ago. And we were talking about it then. And it's taken this long for this to come to fruition. But what a stellar team that you have put together. I just, I had a meeting last week and I just was blown away by the credentials and the backgrounds of all of you. So, uh, you know, you have, I hate to say like my blessing, but I am so, I, I have a lot of confidence that you're going to to do what what you, you all those slides show that you're going to do, that you have <laughs> the rough. people that can actually do that. So I'm really, really happy. Yes, and partnering with our environmental groups is really important. <coughs> But of course, I have to put a plug out there. You know, I started People for Trees, which was the first environmental group here formed in, in Northport. And at that time, at the beginning, we fielded wildlife concerns. And then I had to say, wait a minute, that's not what we're about. So I am so happy that the wildlife is, is being considered and has been considered with these other groups that have come on board, uh, which is wonderful because it really shows what Northport is about and why people come here. I know that's why I came to Northport because of the natural, real beauty of Florida that I that I saw. And then also your focus on the Florida friendly, that that is so important for people to know that's how you can put back what was taken away. So yes, even if they had to do some substantial clearing to build your house, you could put things back to make it look like it was somewhat when you, when you looked at that lot and said, oh, this is beautiful, and then everything's gone. So I love that, the educational component of this. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's it for me. So thank you. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Commissioner. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I neglected to mention in my comments, I wanted to acknowledge the efforts of um, Mayor White. It was really the rewriting of our tree code, one of the very first projects that she spearheaded that made the creation of this team possible. So I wanted to give her proper kudos uh, for that well, as well. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, before we move on to the recycling one, I don't know if there's any public comment uh, relating to the natural resource. I just want to make sure that they're, they're not forgotten about. Right. Well, I was going to get, I thought you had, a, had another question or nope. comment. Okay. Nope. That's all I was just making right. sure. So, City Clerk, do we have any public comment on this? Okay. All right. All right. So we will move on to the 2024 recycling campaign. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So for this piece of the agenda item, we do also have a presentation. I do see some of Public Works' talented leadership team headed in our direction. So I believe one of them will help us with that presentation. But we also thought it was important as this group has been introduced and now hit the ground in our city for them to partner with another um, agency to uh, tackle something that we all think is very important, which is recycling. And not that our efforts are low by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but as we improve and the city improves, there's a direct relationship and how we can get financial financially better as well as environmentally better at the same time. So I'll stop there and turn it over to our solid waste director. 
All right, for the record, uh, Frank Lamas, Solid Waste Manager. Thank you for having us here today, staff and I. Uh, today we're gonna discuss our Recycling Right uh, 2024 campaign. So what is, it, what is the Recycling Right 2024 campaign about? It's a reduction effort modeled after our successful and effective Feed on the Street program the Solid Waste Division has in place to improve the recycling system in our community. The program combines recycling education and recycling inspection at the curb to help to drive positive behavior change and improve people's understanding of what to recycle and what causes contamination, because contamination is big. big. It will also help ensure the long-term success <laughs> and sustainability of our recycling system while reducing costs for the city and the taxpayers. So how does Feed on the Street work? All the solid waste drivers that are out there collecting, they'll call the planner schedule and notice when they see garbage in there or in the recycling tote, they'll call him, he'll go out and take a look. He'll go to the door. When he visits at the home, he'll knock on the door. If the person's not there, he'll go ahead and place a, a solid waste tag, which is a non-collection tag, an oops tag, or he even leaves a guide as well. So we're trying to educate the resident as much as possible what belongs inside the recycling containers. And that would be the blue lid and the tan lid. So here are the tags that are left. See educational tags, yellow non-collection tag, the orange oops recycling tag, and the city and Northport South Waste Guide. One thing I'd like to mention also, we have 40 to 50 new move-ins every week. You believe that? 40 to 50 a week, okay? so. We have a plan now with the planner schedule. The planner schedule now goes out to each one of those people and meets them, greets them right to their face, telling them, hey, here's a guide, here's a recycling calendar. And then also even tells them what's out of the street to go on. So we have that program in place too. We have quite a few programs, always looking to make sure we're educating the resident. So the top five contaminants, plastic bags. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing much better with the recycling bags from stores, which is good. But now we're seeing a lot more 35-gallon uh, bags that are, have recycling in it and put in the recycling tote, which is a no-good. Can't have plastic bags. <laughs> Wet waste, garbage, contaminates the material. Styrofoam, it's a number six. We do not collect the number six here in Northport. Metal and electronics, okay, the metal. You'll see a toaster in there. You'll see pots and pans. That's a different program. We do have that program. Not here in the blue container, though. Electronics. We'll see AC units inside there. Yeah. AC units, yes. So that is a recycle. We do have a program in place. It's just not inside the blue container. That's all. Unnumbered plastics. I bet you there's quite a few people in this room that throw away unnumbered plastics. That throw it away, right? And then there's some that place it in the blue container. They're tricky. If they don't have a triangle, when in doubt, throw it out. The good, the bad, the ugly. The good right there looks good, the first picture. The only thing wrong with that picture is the Pringle cap. It's plastic. Okay, that is garbage. The rest is good. That's good. The bad. There's a container, a tanlet container. Cardboard, beautifully done. Two big black bags of garbage on top. That's garbage. The third one, the ugly. That person there had extra cardboard containers, which did a great job. When you get extra cardboard containers, we're gonna monitor you. And we monitor them up to a six month period. They decided to put black, uh, black bags over the tanlet container, trying to say it was garbage in there. 
and that did not work out too well for them. So we went and spoke to them, and then we pulled the containers out of there. So waste cycling behavior. When material is placed inside the recycling container, even though it may not be a recyclable material, a person feels they have done their job and it's someone else's responsibility now. I'm gonna look at the three totes. The first one right there to the left, it's pretty much 75% of garbage. It might have 25% recycling in there. The one in the middle, that's a tan lid. Cardboard paper, there's bagels in there. That is not cardboard paper. And then the last one is, a, is yard waste. We have another program for that. We do collect yard waste. It just doesn't belong in a blue lid container. So a recycling cart is not a porthole to another universe. There is a cost in the end of bad recycling behavior. And it's $180 a ton. That's how much we pay. That is why the need to recycle rate and to push this recycling rate campaign 2024. So proper curbside recycling. Remains personal to the residents and business of the city of Northport. Contaminated recycling carts negatively impact the environment and result in making the overall process difficult, expensive, and efficient for everyone. Recycling contamination is the definition of a lose-lose situation. The solid waste division staff evaluates contamination levels within the recycling uh, carts to help direct future decisions on targeted recycling educational and social media efforts. And you see that we do one at least uh, three or four every month. We're always talking about what to recycle, what's recycling, what isn't, keeping the contamination out. <laughs> Establishing which items are acceptable for collection to maximize the full recovery value of the item. So if we were to recycle right, it pays to recycle. Since 2009, we collected $1,253,998. <laughs> in revenue for our entire recycling program. Since 2009, our landfill tonnage has increased by 15,782 tons, resulting in $888,684 in fees. If 30% of that tonnage is recycled, instead, we would save over $85,000 a year. So let's talk about 2023. Landfill cost versus recycling cost. In 2023, the landfill cost was $54.48 a ton. Our recycling cost for the year was $34.56 a ton. In 2023, recycling resulted in a cost savings of $16.92 a ton. That's how important it is to make sure we recycle and not throw everything in the trash. We possibly could have saved $580,000. We didn't do that. Staff and I, we worked hard at that. We did the best we could. So let's talk about this year, 2024. The landfill cost is now 5631 a ton. Right now in 2024, the recycling cost is 3822 a ton. Recycling in 2024 result in cost savings of $18.09 a ton. And that 3822, remember, it depends on the market. The market gets better, that number goes lower. The 1809 goes higher. This year, possibly, and we're going to do the best we can, you save over 600000 That's the goal. So one of our Recycling Right campaign goals, it's one of them, raise our recycling rate to 30%. As you can see in 1819, we did 29.9. Uh, 
29.53. But then you look after that, look how low. We're just dropping every year. And there's a reason why. Growth, taking contamination out, and the recyclable materials get much lighter, much lighter. So we want to increase our recycling collection without a contamination cost. We can all make a difference and recycle right. If we recycle right, we can conserve natural resources, help reduce the demand for raw materials, lower our costs for the landfill, that's huge, increase our recycling rate, which we try to do every year, and reduce the need to grow, harvest, or extract new raw materials from the earth. Before I get to questions, though, two reminders. When in doubt, throw it out. Don't put it in the recycling container. Also, cash for trash to keep our assessment steady. And if you have any questions, let me know. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mr. Rama. That looks uh, great. Uh, I love those figures on there. Uh, Vice Mayor. Thank you for the presentation. It does highlight how much savings we can generate when people do this the right way. My big question is what kind of a public education communications program are we going to do here? It's great, you know, as we've seen, you know, we have a great program. We have so many new people moving in. We have a lot of snowbirds that come and go. Are we going to put together or have we put together, or are we planning to put together a strong program of public awareness so we can really communicate this? And it may not be, <laughs> this is not necessarily your wheelhouse okay. by itself, but I'm asking the question of okay. whoever might be in a position to answer it. I mean, although that solid waste, you know, like we were saying, 40 to 50 homes a week, we're reaching out to those people right off the bat. I wish we could have did this 10 years ago. But we are a planner schedule now. He's out there doing his job. The recycle guys and the garbage guys are all watching out, seeing what kind of uh, recycling is going into the garbage or the recycling. So we're doing our part. We're leaving tags, non-collection tags, the oops tags. We're, we're reaching out to anyone we can with the education. See, I, I you know, and, I, and that portion of it, I appreciate what we've got is a whole lot of people who already live here and who are snowbirds especially who come and go, who don't perhaps aren't as sensitized to this issue as they need to be. So what are we doing in our communications department? And it may not be addressed to you, but what are we doing to really get a marketing campaign out there so people are aware of how important it is? Because, you know, I saw in my own planned community, you know, when people did dumb things and put cut up, like lawn debris in the recycle bins. You know, the guys were good. I mean, in my neighborhood, in fact, at my house even, they took some out and set it by the side and left me a little note and was like, <laughs> okay. So I learned, but I'm saying there's a lot of people in the city, 86,000 people, it'd be great to have a real educational program that pounds away. So, Mr. Speaks? Absolutely, Chuck Speak, Public Works Director. Uh, one of the things Frank's, Frank has done, and this is our first year for that, is he did put on that planner scheduler position. As part of those duties of that planner scheduler, they don't just go out to the new homes. They also go out to existing homes. He'll go on a route one day. He'll start flipping lids. So these are people that are here, already have these habits, uh, maybe 
don't care or have forgotten how to recycle, uh, he will make contact with those people as well. So it's kind of a proactive uh, in the field kind of move. On the other side of that, we will be pushing out, and Frank's very good. I'm sure you've all seen Frank on social media. Uh, he's very good at putting out these videos, uh, trying to, yeah. to educate the public on how to do these things right, as well as uh, several times a year he goes to the schools and does presentations there. So we're trying to get them from when they're itty-bitty all the way up until they're adults and get them on the right path. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, I have a couple. Um, I think part of it is we do dual stream. Thankfully, our city stuck with dual stream when the recycling market tanked. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that come from surrounding areas that do single stream, and they may not be aware. We also have a very large rental um, population. Um, they're not aware, and they're not part of your move-in campaign because they're renters. Yep. Um, so, so those are some of the areas that I would bet are the areas that need work on, you know, as far as education. Um, you also mentioned the electronic type of waste, that there's a program. What exactly is that program besides calling in for bulk pickup? You know, and what, what, what constitute um, electric waste? You know, obviously it's a toaster, but what about TVs? What about old computers? What about... You know, do you have to wait until the twice a year when you have the um, the big hazardous waste pickup? Yeah, well, the appliances we pick up for free. So if you have a refrigerator, a microwave, uh, a stove, anything like that, you call us, we just pick that up. Because we do get paid for that. So we're not going to charge a resident a bulk when we're getting paid for something. Well, you might want, that might be part of that educational campaign because I, I did know that you picked up refrigerators for free. I wait for I'll a make pickup. Sure, I'll make you sure know? we have a, a, a social media about that. Yeah, um, no because because that. that's that's huge. But yeah. what about like the TVs? TVs are Those, accepted at the landfill. So they're garbage? So that's garbage. a bulk pickup? Bulk pickup, if you can, unless you can fit it in your tote. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so maybe that's part of that educational campaign that we were trying to do is what to do with the toasters, right. what to do with the TVs, what to do with the refrigerators. We can do that. Um, you know, it's it's huge, um, but also targeting the renters. We work on that every day. I'm sure you do. We do. <laughs> so, and we, we are coming out with a new social media. I believe this week we're going to go ahead and film it. It's going to be about the five con uh, top contaminants and yeah. electronics and metal are in there, and we'll get into that. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. And... Um, Throw in about that distance. I, I know in my neighborhood when I take the dog for a walk, I'm constantly moving the, the, the trash cans because they, they like to marry them. The five, no, and it's the like, five no, 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 we got to separate them. Five foot rule doesn't, yeah. <laughs> so thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Great job, everybody. I really do appreciate everything you guys do. All right, Commissioner Langdon. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I also, I love the recycle program and I really do feel that you're doing everything that you can do from an educational point of view. But for me, we have 30% compliance. We have 70% non-compliance. That's unacceptable. And it's not a comment on our staff. It's a comment on the people who choose not to participate. Um, I, I'm not one for punishment. I much prefer incentives. 
but I'm wondering if you've thought about incentives or fines for people who are habitual offenders who have been educated over and over again. And I hate fines. I'm really not a proponent of that. I know in some communities, probably on a state level though, um, people get five cents or even 10 cents for every plastic and or glass container that they turn in. Have we thought about anything like that? Do we have anything like that? So currently we don't. Um, we don't have anything punitive if they don't recycle. If they continue to recycle incorrectly and, and put contaminants out after being spoken to over and over again, uh, we will pull their can because that costs us time and money. When they contaminate our recycle and it goes to our recycle center, our people have to sort it. And so, it can't be used right, at all. Right. If that contamination goes, if we were to leave that in there instead of, re which Frank's done a great job at the recycle center of sorting and pulling all that contamination out, uh, if you take a load up there, it's over a certain percentage contaminants, you pay for the whole load. You, you don't get paid for that recycle. So that's the, that's the idea behind our recycle center and sorting that. Um, that continued bad behavior, yeah. we, we try to address it. If we can't, we typically pull that can. Um, and we will get a call back from the residents asking for their can back. And so far, they have been more compliant when they get their can back. Uh, <laughs> just a lot of them yeah. want to use that can as a second trash can, which we have a program for that, and we try to explain that to them. Um, but right now, there's no punitive you know, there's no, the incentive for them is their assessment. So if they recycle and that 30%, it's, it's not so much 30% compliant as far as participation. We have more, uh, our participation rate is pretty high. And we do, we do, uh, Frank does surveys of the routes to see how many are out. They'll flip the lids, see mm -hmm. how many are, you know, are recycling right and wrong. Um, Frank has a crazy amount of data on this stuff. He lives and breathes it. So 30% is the rate <clears throat> of of overall tonnage. Right. So of all of our refuse, where 30% is being recycled out of all of our tons of what he picks up at the curb. Mm -hmm. So, oh, or that's okay. where we I want to go. Was, that was a participation. No, and I wanted to clear that up. Good, our, thank our, you. our citizens are doing much better than 30%. Okay. Um, okay. But it is the overall tonnage. And that's, that's not 30% is a good goal, mm -hmm. you know, for us. That's, that's a lot of tonnage at the end of the year. Okay. But we're, we're still working through some ways to get compliance. There are some people that will never comply, and we would rather them just throw in the trash, like Frank said. Right, right. Again, I'm wondering, it, it might be more cumbersome than it delivers value, but maybe some kind of reduction on the assessment for good um, recyclers or, you know, something. It would be a pain. I would say we already that. have that. The rate is okay. based, I mean, our, our, okay. our solid waste rate is based on that that revenue that we get in from recycling affects that rate that they pay. How do we compare to other communities in the state? Do we know? Or, or that like rate, the 30 Oh, very good. Very yep. good. We're pretty much 30, 35% in that range is really where you should be. I mean, we're only at 20. We should be at 28. We're well low now. Right. But I think we can get to that 30% and be in the range like everybody else. Okay. And like you said, the set out rate, I did happen to talk to uh, a, someone in Sarasota and their set out rate was way low. Ours is very high. So we have the set out rate. It's just the material so much lighter. 
the contaminants we're trying to catch at the curb before it gets anywhere. And that's the reason. Right. Thank you for that. One last question. Um, where does our recycled <coughs> material go once it leaves the city? It goes to uh, Sarasota. Mm -hmm. They have a recycling center there. They recycle it there, and then they, they bail it, clean it, make sure it's good, and it ships off. Good. And a lot of it stays here in the United States. Okay. So it gets sold in the United States. And remember, we get money for that. Right. We were partners, so right. we're partners. Okay, thank you for that. Good work. All right, before we go to the second round, I'll just put my two cents in here. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I think we have a great program, and I love the two different uh, color tops. But, yes, there are continuing problems with people who don't comply, and I see it all the time. And it was mentioned about the rentals, and I, I agree with that. They, they just throw everything in there. And we also have Airbnbs. I know where I live, and I've seen there's one that I pass when I – um, you know, come here all the time, and you can always tell when there's new people in there for the week because they'll just have garbage. They'll just have anything in there. And um, I know we don't have a registration process for rentals or Airbnbs, but maybe that would help because I know when I go to Airbnbs, uh, other places and other areas, there's a whole big list of this is how we do this, and, and you're, you're instructed. And they're probably not getting any instruction. Like, they, how would they know, really, what, what is what? So that would help with educating that sector, at least, to get maybe some more of them online. Um, but I love the tags that you have that, that is, you know, that's being proactive, say, okay, so people know, because if you don't address it, they're just going to think it's okay all the time, that you're going to take care of it, and that's it. So I love that, um, that you're, you're, you're doing that. And, um, and I, the last thing, I just would like to see us engage in a, in a more aggressive recycling outside of household, uh, as far as what we have out in, in the community, when we have trash containers, we're really big on putting out trash containers, and then there's recycling containers some places, but I was talking about this with other people, that typically what I'll see is the recycling and the trash containers are in two separate areas. You know, they, they need to be together if you really want to encourage recycling, especially in our even in our own buildings here. Um, you know, I've seen that big soda bottle some places, but again, it's kind of like in a corner sometimes or not really with the trash uh, is so yeah so um, you know that would really be something I'd, I'd like to see us so that people know that we recycle here and that helps to that education trickle down to to where they live like okay I guess you know we do recycle in Northport um, I guess we do so um, so thank you thank you uh, vice mayor yeah I had a thought that I hadn't brought up before um, you know as 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 we continue to grow as a city and, and we're finding ourselves developing more apartment buildings, more condominiums, more multifamily facilities, housing residential facilities where dumpsters are more prevalent. Um, what challenges do we have there? Because, you know, I'm looking at, I'm in transition between one house and another. I'm living in an apartment in my district, which is a brand new apartment complex. People have the slot, you know, they're dropping their bags down, they're dumping stuff in baskets. We do separate our paper and other things, but I'm wondering what challenges that might present. And is that a, an area that needs development and 
help. Well, one thing we do is when we do the SDR, we make sure they have uh, enough recycling and garbage for, for, for the community. So we, let's get that straight right there because they're not just going to throw garbage away and just uh, not recyclable. So we, it starts with that program right there. So in SDR, we make sure it gets approved, that they have enough uh, containers for recycling and the garbage, and we take care of that. Now, our commercial supervisor and the team there, they do a great job too. They're out there, they're dumping. If they see anything in the cardboard container that's garbage, we dump it as garbage. If they're dumping the garbage and it has recyclable in there, they'll let us know, and then we educate those people, those apartment complexes and things like that. We're on top of it. Good. All right. Anything else? Nope. Okay, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, just a couple things. You said pull the can. When when they're non-compliant over and over and over again, they pull the can. What what does that mean? Are you pulling only the recycling cans? Are you pulling all of the cans? No, we will we will remove the recycling container. Okay. They're not using it correctly. Again, that costs our staff time and money. Gotcha. Just wanted to make sure. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Because I, I don't know if we could legally pull the trash can, and do we want to really truly do that? Right, and we and 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 it is you know a fine line that we walk. Uh, we don't want to punish them by pulling the can and then they never recycle again. Right. But we do have conversations with them about our second uh, refuse can program, where they can get another can for the extra trash. Because sometimes that's what they have. They have more trash. They may recycle right at the bottom. Then they've got that last trash bag they throw on top and they contaminate the whole thing. So, you know, we try to work that through with them. And I know I personally, speaking for myself, when I have that extra trash bag, I go looking at my neighbors and go, he's empty. <laughs> you know, they're not going to care. And they do it to me too. So um, you mentioned the two tags, the oops tag and the non-compliant tags. The, maybe after non-compliance, maybe you could put a third tag of, hey, good job, attaboy kind of tag. That way then reinforcing the good behavior so they don't backslide. Just throwing that out there as sure, an option. No, that's that's you know, a good idea. You know, because the last thing you want is they gain compliance. They may not even realize that they've gained compliance and now they got an attaboy. Right. So. A thank you tag. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So. Okay. That's it. All right. Do we have any public comment on that? Okay. Great discussion. All right, thank you. You guys okay? Keep going? Yes. Okay. All right, we're moving on to general business, 24-0028, discussion and possible direction regarding prepayment plan options for the water and wastewater expansion project. Uh, city manager, this is your item. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, we do have a presentation. If you recall, back in November of 2023, the team brought you some information regarding some prepayment waste and wastewater uh, options. We've done some more research, and we have a recommendation to you based on what we found and based on the request from the commission. And we'll start there and then have a discussion on how you would like us to proceed forward. I will now turn it over to our Deputy Director of Public Utilities. Hello, thank you very much, City Manager. I'm Susan Bracefield, the Assistant Director in the Utilities Department, and I apologize. I am
I'm sorry, there we go. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. At the November 14th, 2023 meeting, we were asked to come back to a workshop to present the prepayment plan options. Currently in, in the city code, there is an existing prepayment incentive for existing homeowners who agree to make payments before the expansion project is completed. The incentives are that there would be no line extension fee, the current rate of capacity would be locked in, the homeowners would still need to pay the connection fee and capacity fee at the time of the meter application, and the entire the plan is for the contractor hired by the city to do the entire connection from the street to the home. There is also an availability in the prepayment incentive for payment over time, and that if new or replacement well and septic systems were installed, there's an incentive credit. The customers with existing homes may elect installment payments for the capacity fee over a period not exceeding 30 years. Customers that have existing homes with new wells and or septic systems, there's a availability for a credit for the line extension fee if they if they do not enter into an agreement with the city early. If, if for vacant land, there is, will also, there is also a prepayment incentive. Uh, for vacant land, they would have to pay lump sum. They would rate, lock in the current rate of capacity and the current line extension fee. They would wait to pay the meter connection fee until the time that they actually constructed a home on that property and extended the line from the property line to their home. The, the service line from the newly, newly installed pipe to the property line would also be installed by the city contractor. So it would be available for those vacant lots in the future. The current city code also includes a hardship program. It refers homeowners to the Sarasota County State Housing Initiatives Partnership Program. Um, at this time, at the November 14th meeting, there was some discussion about when these prepayment plans would be done. It is our rec the staff's recommendation that prepayments only be taken for project areas that are ready to be constructed in the near future. Um, we've crafted a potential addition to the city code that reads property owners within the section of the city included in the neighborhood expansion project approved by commission to be advertised for construction will be notified and sent a connection agreement for signature prior to the start of construction. Once the water and or wastewater service is installed in front of the property, the system will be considered available to connect to the customer's property and the opportunity for prepayment will no longer be available. Um, I, as this is the reason that we're here is looking for direction and if we, if commission thinks that we, we need this ordinance change and if that's the proper change that you would like to see. Um, 
we there were some questions that were submitted prior to the meeting. If you would like, I could go through those questions first, or if you'd like to ask questions first, that's fine too. Okay. Do we have any questions? I'm not seeing any. Okay, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, um, I appreciate the coming back and having this discussion. Um, I like the idea of adding to the code the provisions that you suggested. The only thing is, is when you notify the property owner that construction is going to be happening um, in the area, that it really should be a certified letter. And hear me out why. I know it's more expensive. But too often when I get letters in the mail, sometimes I just kind of go, junk mail, scammy type mail. And I want to also be able to have the opportunity for the city to say, hey, we sent you a certified letter. We can't make you open it to read it. This way you have documentation that it was sent and received. And that I know it's a much more expensive thing, but I think it's going to be proven to be beneficial, um, not only for the people to sign up, because I know when I get a certified letter, it's like, oh, oh what, what's this about? <laughs> you know, um, And this way, too, you guys have documentation that it was received. So I'm just throwing it out there. I think that's a conversation we'll have to have as a board to add that back in. Um, the other thing is <clears throat> the... Um, I don't know if we need to put something in the code that if it is the project is abandoned or, or halted or postponed for whatever reason. So we approved the construction contract and whatever reason it got postponed, delayed. Maybe it's um, supply chain issues, maybe it's a hurricane, maybe something else. They found an error in the whatever. If they, if the customer signed up for it and this delay or cancellation of the project, are they gonna be able to get their money back? And I think that would probably be a commission decision. And maybe we need to put something in there as to what will happen if those circumstances do arise. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Um, I don't know if you want to weigh in on um, some of these. We we did staff discussed that possibility, and the, we thought that since the letters and the agreements will not be sent out <laughs> until we're sure the construction is going forward, that there is a low possibility of the project being abandoned <coughs> at that point. So it might be a case if that situation arose due to a major hurricane or some other unforeseen problem that. Maybe that would be a case-by-case -case issue that commission would need to look at. Yeah. But, but it can be and the other thing is, is once they <coughs> sign, the flip side is once they sign that agreement, that there are no refunds. Right. You know, uh, and I didn't see that um, in the code or even in one of your suggestions. So that way then they fully understand you're signing this agreement, there are no refunds. That's a good suggestion. So um, the only other one I had is, I know that when you answered some of my questions, you said that um, if there's a sale of property, so I own the property, I sell it, this, the prepayment plan would have to be satisfied 100%. Yes. 
why are we not considering doing a special assessment on the tax bill for that area? And what made me think about it when I was preparing for today's meeting is Floribana. They had a special assessment just for that area for the water and sewer. Um, so I just, instead of it being a, something that has to be satisfied at point of sale if there's a prepayment, why not just put the whole area on a special assessment on the taxes? I don't know if that's been looked at. We, we, can, we can look at that. We didn't look at that. Might be easier all the way around. That when we have a construction contract, that's when we start a special assessment on the taxes. I don't know. Just an idea. So um, those those were the things that I really wanted to chat about and appreciate the conversation. And I appreciate you bringing it back so quickly for conversation again. Thank you. Okay, uh, Vice Mayor. Just a couple of comments, not really questions. I'm, I'm happy to see the recommendation is, is not to create a prepayment plan that's pushed out too far mm -hmm. in advance. I mean, I think administratively it would become a nightmare to administer and, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it's just additional expense and additional time and resources spent. Um, uh, additionally, that's why I, while, while I can, I appreciate my fellow commissioners comments about certified mail. The idea of the prepayment plan, if, if it's advertised as construction begins in an area and that window opens with some simple notification, I, I, I'm not as comfortable with a program to, to try to convince people to do it because I don't think that's our obligation to do it, just to make them aware. I'd hate to, I mean, I don't know how much of a burden Certifi certified mail and how much of a cost would be as opposed to just simple notification. <laughs> if it's not a big deal, then so be it. Better it be certified. But if not, then, you know, I'm not so inclined to push it. But, um, you know, I just feel that, uh, you know, it's a nice option for folks out there. Help save them some money. I just don't want to see us burden ourselves administratively with this thing. <laughs> Prepayment plans can tend to do. People move, people make changes, you know, It'll become a nightmare to take care of if we're not careful. That's all okay. I have to say. All right, Commissioner Langdon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Just a quick comment, keying off something uh, Vice Mayor said. Uh, I live out east, and so this program won't hit my neighborhood for about 50 to 75 years from now. Um, however, Having said that, personally, I would love to be able to pay for that today in today's dollars, but I realize that could become a real financial issue for the city in 50 to 75 years. So uh, as much as I would personally love that, I'm glad thought of that has been abandoned. Um, but I really, I like the prepayment options. I agree with the conversation. I also want to make sure everyone in those construction areas have the information. I don't think it's our job to convince them. They can make their own decisions. So um, terrific. I'm a huge supporter <laughs> of this program. I'm all set. All right, uh, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up to Vice Mayor's point about the certified mail. Um, absolutely not our job to say, hey, sign up, don't sign up, pros, cons. It, it, we do have to do that small little bit of education, 
But the reason for certifying mail, my suggestion to your point, people move, people sell the property. And if we have it certified mail and I am noticed and I get the notice and I go, I'm moving, I'm not, I'm not gonna be here. I've already got my house up for sale, but I sell it to somebody else and they're like, well, how come I didn't get to sign up? Well, you, you didn't receive the notice because you weren't the property owner at that time. It kind of saves you guys that trouble. Um, and I don't know how any of that will work logistically, but I, I just really think it's a protection mechanism for staff instead of the I didn't know kind of thing. Um, and also to prevent people from getting a letter and then calling and going, what is this? What is this? Uh, this is a scam. This has got to be a scam. That's the biggest thing because we get only junk mail in the mailbox these days, it seems. Um, but I really think these are great ideas to add in here. Um, I don't know, do you need direction um, today or are you going to automatically be, be, be bringing back things? Um, we, we, we can bring this back as a formal addition. Okay. Mm -hmm. Are you going to be bringing back the fact of no refunds once we can, we can we can add that? Okay. Do you need direction to do that, or are you just going to do it? I, I'm just I, asking because we're having this conversation today, and so it's currently there's no mechanism to give a refund. I don't see a harm in adding a sentence that there will be no refunds to make it clear. All right. Okay, Commissioner. Um, yeah, I'm obviously not in favor of the certified mail thing. Uh, I think that would just create more a more cumbersome um, approach to this. And also, with certified mail, yes, you have to sign for it. And and I know that I've gotten certified mail things. And if you're not home, you have to go to the post office. So if they don't go there, they, there's no receipt that they received anything anyway. So you're right back where you. You started from, but it's just going to, uh, you know, involve a lot more uh, uh, legwork for for staff, and then it's not going to result in in what we're hoping or thinking it's going to accomplish. So, that your recommendation there: Do you need a, a formal consensus for that, or do we want to? Are we good with that, or what do we want to do? Um. I think if everyone's in agreement, we'll come back with a formal amendment to the code for approval. Okay, do it. Can I do that or no? She said that they're going to just yeah. bring it back. Oh, no. Bring it back. Yeah. Well, with that recommendation, you want to make you want uh, to call for I mean, staff has a pretty good feel for where okay. we're at. We're all sort of focused on the same direction, so. Okay. Thank you. Okay, are we good? Do you have a timetable on that? A rough timetable on when it might come back? Um, I'll, I'll confer that. with the city clerk on when we can get on a meeting. Okay. Write this down. Okay, so that's all coming back with what we talked about. Good deal. All right, do we have any public comment? Okay. All right, turn the page. Bob Seeker. Uh, does, <laughs> Can we take 10? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's take a 10. <laughs> 10 minutes.
Okay. It is 10:22, and I again call this meeting to order. We are on item 24-0041, discussion and possible direction regarding the city fee structure and city fee study. Uh, city manager, this is your item. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, just as a brief background, you might recall that during the budget process, we as a staff and team analyzed various fees that we charge throughout for uses for the city on an annual basis. You have now seen most recently a spreadsheet updated with the, um, the methodology that those fees are generated from, and they vary anywhere from a study, benchmark comparisons, or some just have been raised gradually over time. Uh, based on some of the public records requests that we've received lately, we've been asked for from at least two different attorneys information that we currently don't have in existence, which is how did you get to the true methodology of some of these fees. And while at least two of them off the top of my head, road and drainage and solid waste are done by outside independent third parties, most of them are not. So we recommend that it would be a good time for us to stop and look at our fees. And we recommend that we engage a consultant for a cost of services study to determine the full cost incurred by the various departments to support the various activities for which we charge user fees. A cost recovery is considered a responsible and necessary means to support and supplement tax revenue and provide a greater level of services that benefit the community. But due to the complexity and the breadth of performing a comprehensive review of fees, a consultant um, using a variety of methodologies to identify the full cost of these individual fees and programs and activities could be very helpful. Cost recovery, cost recovery does not imply that the target is total cost recovery of the cost. However, a target is established according to a variety of considerations that may range from 0% to no more than 100% of direct costs. The reality of uh, the local government fee environment is that significant increases <coughs> to achieve 100% cost recovery cannot often be feasible, desirable, or appropriate depending on policy direction, particularly in one single year. The recommended fees would and should be, be at either at or less than full cost recovery. So we recommend that we proceed in this direction so we'll have the answer that we are being asked right now, um, but we seek uh, any direction and feedback you have on the topic. Okay, thank you. Now there was a presentation attached to this, but that, are we yes. gonna show that? So the presentation is there. If you have any questions regarding individual line items, the 26 page um, document is, is lengthy because of the number of fees that we have, but you may have questions regarding some individual fees, which we can happily put up on the screen. We have our director of finance, okay. Kimberly Williams, here to help it as well. Uh, but ultimately, when you see the columns on the far right, you will notice that most of them say no when it comes to external uh, consultation. Most of it is determined by an in-house at uh, unorganized analysis, which is, I hate to say, probably <coughs> typical of most local governments, but having a chance to stop and push the reset button to actually get it going in a way that we can all see and be comfortable with is a great way to go. Okay, and did I hear you say the term unorganized <coughs> analysis? Is that what, I like that term. Yes. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it, okay. Um, but that, I like that, okay. Uh, Vice Mayor. Um, yeah, I just really wanna compliment city manager for this one because I know, you know, transparency is always an issue with a climate of distrust across the country with regard to government, 
I think it's a good thing to do this. You know, um, the less subjectivity that goes into how some of these fees are figured and calculated, the better. The ability to use outside groups, even at a at a cost, um, really adds to to a professional <laughs> nature of of how fee structures are put together. And, and so the public develops a level of comfort with that. Um, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I really appreciate you guys getting out ahead of this issue because I know, you know, we saw it from the chamber, we saw it from other people, questions raised. And, you know, we do try as a city government to be as transparent as we can be. And I think this should send a loud message to everyone that we do hear you and we do try to do and always try to do the right thing. And this, I think, is the right thing to do, even if it costs us some money to do it. So thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. yes, sir. All right, Commissioner McDowell. <clears throat> so when we discussed our last fee increase, there were a lot of new fees. And I remember distinctly asking, how were these new fees derived? How did we come up with those fees? A lot of them were done by comparison to neighboring communities. And I still was questioning, okay, neighboring communities are charging, I don't know, $50. Um, but is that what Northport needs? Does Northport need $75 or does Northport need $25? Or is $50 sufficient? Um, I, I really believe that when we institute new fees, especially for districts, for the building department, that we really should be doing an outside study. I know that they're costly and I know that it takes time, but it is a independent third party kind of thing. Um, and it's, it kind of, it paints the picture of what does Northport need as opposed to using outside jurisdictions. Uh, Parks and Rec's fees, when Parks and Rec um, has fee increases, they usually have an internal study done. And there's a more user fee, you know, like for the Aquatic Center or for renting a space in the Morgan Center. Um, and most recently, even for the community yard sale. So those are a little bit different than fees that are applied across the board for the permits. <clears throat> and any of the new fees that were outlined by like the fire department and the other departments that had new fees. Um, third party independent kind of takes the monkey off the city's back and says, hey, this independent third party did this study and said, hey, we need to charge $75 even though jurisdictions are only charging 50. Um, I also firmly believe that our fees should be reevaluated every five years. Okay, maybe every seven years, maybe every 10 years, but to do a study one year and then just leave it alone and forget about it is not productive for our city. Um, it doesn't, it, it, things increase, salaries increase, costs of service, uh, costs of goods increase. We have to do that for impact fees if we want to raise our impact fees. We, we, ha we really should be doing it for our fees across the board at, at a regular basis to make sure we're being fair and equitable to everybody. 
Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was the commission <clears throat> back in June of 2020, and I know that was three and a half years ago, and a lot has changed since June of 2020, but the commission did put in the budget to do a fee study analysis. And it obviously never got done. And that was more geared towards the permitting fees to make sure that they were fair and equitable to the builders. Um, but it didn't get done. So COVID was one of the main reasons. We had some internal struggles that was probably another big player. So I don't fault anybody for that study not being done, but unfortunately it fell off the radar. And here we are today still saying, should we be doing a fee study? So those are my thoughts, but I, I've, I really want to reiterate that we do need to have a fee study for new fees that external people are paying for that are for like the fire department, the building department, inspection fees, just on a regular basis to make sure that it's fair and equitable instead of just saying, oh, everybody else is doing it. So thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Langdon. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I, I also am very glad that we're proposing or discussing uh, doing this study because I, I don't think raising a fee because a neighboring municipality is charging more is really justification for us raising a fee. Um, likewise, we might have to charge more for a certain kind of fee for whatever reason, it might cost us more to deliver that service. So for me personally, while I'm, I'm delighted that we're responding to public comment as a commissioner, I always want to be able to tie um, a fee that we're charging to the actual costs of delivering that particular program or service, whatever it is. Um, and in the unlikely event that we're overcharging for something, and I really don't anticipate that that's the, the situation, um, you know, we should reduce that fee. Um, and likewise, if we're undercharging, then we have a conversation. Do we want to absorb some of that? The Aquatic Center, for example, do we want to absorb some of that as a community benefit? Or should we consider raising a particular fee because of the cost of delivering that asset, that resource, or that program? So I'm 100% behind doing this study so that we have a financial basis for everything we're charging. Thank you, I'm done. Okay, before we go to our second round, I just had some questions. So the current fee uh, schedule would be in place because that was put in place for, for this fiscal year, correct? Yes, ma'am. Um, ideally, this consultant would do work during uh, our budget process that we're about to kick off right now. Right. And then we'd have the answer to these questions before it's time for you to adopt your new budget for 25. Okay, so the current fees fees would hold, and this would be for the next um, fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And did we talk about what it would be the cost of the study? We don't know what the cost of the study is yet. It would depend on how, how the scope works out with the number of fees that have to be analyzed. We don't have a lot of them, as you saw <coughs> on that schedule. 
that already are taken care of by external parties. So it could be um, a heavy lift for them, but we believe that uh, we can absorb whatever that cost is in our current budget without asking you for anything else at this point in time. Oh, okay. All right, those were my questions. Commissioner McDowell. Yeah, <clears throat> the other thing that is very beneficial to having a fee study is it helps us determine if we're competitive because there's a lot of developers that look at the fees that we charge and then say, you know, this city doesn't charge or this city doesn't charge this, but this one does and it might save them some money. So they may go to another city or county just because of these fees that we may have in place um, that others don't um, if ours are astronomical. So it, it's, it's not just beneficial to us, it's also to keep us competitive as we embrace, embrace economic development and bringing um, well-paying jobs here and commercial development. So th there's, there's a lot of wins in my opinion to having these studies done. Um, but I just wanted to add in about that competitiveness. Um, and I really think that this study doesn't need to, and I don't know how my fellow commissioners feel, it doesn't need to focus on the impact fees. It, it, it should be just our city fees. The new fees that we just did this past year, do that fee study, and definitely our permitting fees and inspection fees. Um, because that analysis has not been done for a very, very, very long time. Uh, the attorney. Thank you, Mayor. Because there was a reference to impact fees, I want to make sure we are very clear on the mm -hmm. record right. that the city has properly adopted impact right. fees pursuant right. to consultant studies. Thank you for that. Commissioner Langdon. Yes, thank you, Mayor. Um, uh, Commissioner McDowell triggered a thought, and I just want to clarify my comment. I, I still support our doing a competitive evaluation of our fee structure um, as an important part of establishing our fees, both for competitive reasons, as Commissioner McDowell pointed out, but also um, as sort of a uh, check and balance uh, for the costs we might have to deliver a certain um, asset or, or program because it could be sort of the canary in the mine shaft that our costs are so, sort of out of whack mm -hmm. compared to how other municipalities in our area are charging um, and we might not be as efficient as, as someone else. So I just wanted to be clear that I don't see um, doing a cost-based analysis of our fee structure is the be-all and end-all. We still should do that sort of competitive check to see where we are standing relative to our neighboring communities. Okay. Thank you. Yes, City Manager. Thank you, um, Commissioner Langdon. And as we develop the scope of this project, we firmly believe that benchmarking will be um, a required task because if we don't know how we compare it to our peers, then we have a problem. And if we don't know how we can fully stand up and justify what we charge, that's a different kind of a problem. Right, right. But, it, but at the end of the day, we have to have the protection of someone who is not tied to the city to sort of put that out in the public for the transparency and all the other things you guys have discussed as a board. Agreed. 
Okay, I just wanted to, to comment that, yes, this is needed to substantiate what we're charging, and, and it came out of people thinking we were overcharging. And so, but some of those fees could go down, but some could go up. So just so that, you know, be careful what you wish for sometimes. <laughs> you know, so I just want to put that out there. It doesn't mean everything's going to go down um, and, and work in, in your favor. So uh, are we good with that? Did you need anything else? Are no, we okay we're good. With Thank the, you, Madam Mayor. Uh, wait a minute, Commissioner McDowell? Yeah, do we need to give consensuses on what we're actually asking the city manager to do so when they bring it back, we're kind of like all on the same page? All right, I'll, well, sure. Uh, <coughs> Adam, but, Go ahead. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice. Um, to have the city manager work with staff to do a fee study on permit and inspection. I'm sorry, to do a fee study on all building fees, building department fees, and any new fees that were instituted in fiscal year 23. 24. City Manager? Ma'am, uh, we do not want you to delimit the scope of the study up here today. Every oh, fee that okay. you see on the document that was attached in there needs to be reviewed. I don't want to go in and cherry pick out which ones sound good and don't sound good. We need to make sure that they all are treated the same regarding how we charge them now. They're, they're the same fees that you adopted. So any fee outside of what you adopted, and I think impact fees was already mentioned as an example, already have their own considerations and right, conditions. Right. This is strictly for your city fee structure that you adopt annually, so you can have a better sense of comfort when you adopt it for next year. We are, we are good on the scope. Okay, so. Yeah, the only thing is, is I, I don't feel that we need to do it for user-based fees like Parks and Rec, what they charge. Those we vet ourselves. Those are something that is unique to the city for using the Morgan Center meeting rooms or admission to the Aquatic Center or, or admission to any anything that Parks and Recs does. Um, I don't know needs to be in the study and I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Do we really want to have the cost for doing the Parks and Rec fees? Commissioner Langdon? Yeah, um, I would like to see this work done on any fee we charge that doesn't already perform its own regular analysis of the fee structure. Um, and that includes Parks and Rec. Um, and even though we might have something unique in this city that other municipalities don't have, like an aquatic center, for example, I think it's valuable for us to look at similar facilities in the area um, and benchmark against it at the very least. Um, I also think that mem some members of the community really don't have an appreciation of the true cost of the recreational assets that we provide to the city because we, as a matter of <coughs> policy or legality, um, we charge less. I mean, I think we all know that the cost of providing that aquatic center costs way more than what we charge people to use it. 
Um, and I think having that information documented and disseminated to the community would hopefully elevate everyone's appreciation for what we offer here in the city. So I would want to see it for everything. Certainly not Fire and Rescue that does their own study and some other departments who do their own studies relative to their fee structures. But everything that currently does not have um, a methodology to it should be part of this program. I'm done. All right, thank you, Commissioner. And, and just uh, to put my two cents in there, I agree. If we're going to do this, let's not cherry pick it and, and do this. They're going to uh, get a consultant to or do a study for everything at, at one time. So this way mm -hmm. we'll have everything documented and once and for all um, and not come back later and say, oh, gee, we didn't do that one. Um, so uh, Commissioner McDowell. Yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate uh, Commissioner Langdon's point. She sold me. Uh, not cherry picking it and uh, and the necessity of doing the parks and rec. And you had me up to the point until you mentioned fire rescue. Fire rescue has new fees that were not studied independently, that were not studied through their their fee analysis. And to me, that was what prompted this whole discussion. And I really feel that the fire rescue fees, are to be included in this study that were just instituted this last year. It's a new fee. I'm done. Mr. Langdon. I, I have a question for Chief Titus then. Um, if it's his intention to include those new fees in his next study, I would be happy with that. Um, if not, then I do agree with Commissioner McDowell. We should look at those as well. Okay, sir. Good morning, Scott Titus for Fire Rescue District Fire Chief. Um, typically, uh, when Stantec comes in and looks at our fees, they're looking at our fees on the assessment side mm -hmm. only. Not they're not they don't look at the user fee side. Um, when we developed and looked through and requested for new fees this year. We looked at what the surrounding areas, Sarasota, Charlotte, Englewood, surrounding right. fire departments charged for those things. There was a lot of things that, that we previously have not charged for that um, through this fee structure we are. The revenue generation of that, it's very much, it's, it, it begins to offset that cost, but it doesn't even come close to, to, a, to a singular employee in, in what that change was. So um, it was just an ability to look at and try and be uh, comparable to surrounding agencies. So whatever you all decide or city manager directs, we are, we are amenable to, to move forward however you choose. Great. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. All right, so do we want to, you want to have a consensus for, to include the fire fees? Or do you want to see if, what do you want to do about that? Because this well, is not, the fire fees are not included in this, right? Correct. I mean, if, I'm, if I'm hearing correctly, they're not included in the mm -hmm. city fee structure. Right. You would like us to add that fee to this report? Yes. Let us know, and we will we will do so. Okay. Because I know I know I've heard from residents specifically about ambulances, and that would not be included if we didn't include the fire. Um, so what I was speaking to actually it applies on both sides. So we have. On the fire side, on the district side, we have fire assessments, um, which is what Stantec does. The new fees that were introduced this year, 
were on, on the fire side were fees for inspections. They don't they don't impact individual homeowners or residents. They they affect um, business. So it's it's annual business fire inspections that we already do, and it's plans review costs and things like that. On the general fund side of the house, um, there are no new fees proposed. It was an increased fee and it was comparable. Those are for user fees for ambulance transport. And those are what's uh, bringing us again comparable to surrounding areas. Is that better explained? All right, so are those included in the city fees then? Your ambulance fees? Yes. So that would be included in the study that we're talking about. That we're gonna do, but to make sure I understand, the district fees, which has a new fee in it, would it be better analyzed by Stantec or included in this study? The new fees on the district side. So Stantec has only ever looked at our assessments on the fire side, which which is the two-tier system, which we're all very kind of used to speaking with. There's always been, uh, on the other side of that, on the fee structure, on the user side, right. um, there's always been uh, some of the uh, inspection or plans review fees, but they were... They were kind of nominal, so we've expanded that, looked at what was happening in other areas. Um, our understanding from previous commissions and this commission is that if there's the ability, when you're looking at formulation of budget, if there's the ability to offset some of those those costs and abilities, is to try and appropriately place them where they belong. So we looked at what surrounding areas were doing and, and try to be competitive and comfortable with them. So I guess to answer your question, it, those, those are listed in the fee structure in the document that you have uh, that you looked at today. Not our fire assessments, but our right. the other fees. Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll see about getting consensus okay. just for clarity. Thank you. Um, for getting that last consensus that I attempted to <laughs> um, uh, to give direction to the city manager to do a appendix A fee study analysis of all fees listed in that appendix A. Um, okay, Commissioner Langdon. I'm good with that. Vice Mayor. Ties it to that one appendix. I'm just wondering if we shouldn't say something like all city fees not already the subject of, you know what I mean? So it's all inclusive. That is all. That is the all-inclusive mm -hmm. list that you voted on last year. For okay, but you're good with it. Right. Is, is the entire fee schedule? Right. Then okay. yes, okay. I'm good with it. All right. Thanks for that for clarifying that too, Vice Mayor. I, I'm good. Yep. All right. So uh, are we good? Do you have everything you need? Yes, Mayor. Thank okay. you, Mayor. Okay. Do we have any public comment? All right, moving on to item C in general business, which is 24-0031, training for quasi-judicial proceedings. And this is our city attorney at the helm. There you go. Good morning, Mayor. This is the annual quasi-judicial training for the city commission that you all have directed. We typically do this in December, but because of due to scheduling, we're here in January. And so you'll see me again, uh, hopefully in December after the elections when we have some new members on the board. So quasi-judicial, what is quasi-judicial? Our state law uh, indicates that certain types of proceedings are quasi-judicial. And the general overview 
is that most quasi-judicial decisions impact property rights. These are decisions the board is making where you are applying existing regulations to a piece of property, as opposed to when you are adopting new regulations or legislation. So typically you're looking at a specific application for a certain type of property use or property right. While in general, we know through our state law that these are quasi-judicial proceedings, the actual procedures are established by local law. We find those in our city code at chapter two, article three. And these procedures set forth due process for our applicants. For the most part, these procedures are used by the city commission, the planning and zoning advisory board, and the zoning board of appeals. And they are so important that we follow them precisely because of the due process element. Failure to do so can deprive the applicant of this constitutional right and can cause us to end up in an appeal into the court system. Our code specifically defines quasi-judicial matters, again, involving the application of city regulations to a specific property as opposed to, to the city at large. And that's distinct from when you are creating those regulations. These matters include, according to our codes, site-specific rezoning, special exceptions, plat approvals, variances, appeals from an administrative determination of staff. The Development Services Director has the right under our Unified Land Development Code to interpret the ULDC, so an appeal of that type of uh, interpretation and vacation of easements, among others. So when you are sitting in a quasi-judicial decision-making capacity, what does that mean? I mean, you're in the same seats, you have the same titles, what changes? Well, what changes is, is the subject matter before you and what you are performing in your role. Most of the time, as a city commission, you're sitting in a legislative capacity. You are analyzing and adopting new laws and creating legislation. Here, you're sitting in the role that's somewhat akin to a judge. This is set up similar to the court system, not identically, but in a, in a quasi situation. So the role of the quasi-judicial decision maker is to conduct the hearing, to evaluate the facts, to weigh the evidence before you, to draw conclusions, to exercise discretion, and most importantly, while you're doing all of this, to remain fair and impartial. So let's talk about our city's specific quasi-judicial procedures. You all have a flowchart that you have followed that we have prepared for you and that we will likely be updating before the next time we conduct this training. That includes an introduction and your ex parte disclosures, then the public hearing with all the different aspects, and then the board action. So the first step in this process is the introduction of the case. The mayor calls and introduces the case or asks the city clerk to do that. The clerk delivers an oath to everyone who is testifying and uniquely under our city's rules, that also includes the attorneys. Typically attorneys are advocates and not witnesses, but under Northport city code, uh, they must be sworn. Also your public commenters must be sworn. And note that this is different than when you're receiving public comment on a non-quasi-judicial item. People are just coming up and talking. 
that in quasi-judicial hearings, you are taking evidence. So you are hearing sworn testimony from individuals. The next thing that occurs are your ex parte disclosures. So what is ex parte? This term that we use so often in our court system, it's essentially any information that you receive outside of the hearing. So think about um, when we're drawing the parallel to the court system, that everything should occur inside the hearing in front of everyone who's involved. So if you're a party, you hear everything that the other party has to say to the judge or to the decision maker. Nothing happens behind closed doors. Nothing happens you know, in, in secret or in private. So an ex parte um, communication is something that happens outside of that formal public hearing. That is any verbal or written expression made to you or by you outside the presence of all interested parties related to the merits of any matter on which you're going to take action in that quasi-judicial item. And under the law, that's considered presumed to be prejudicial. If you hear it outside of the hearing, it's presumed to be prejudicial to the party who wasn't involved in the communication, right? I mean, it sort of makes sense. If, if I didn't hear about it, I'm going to assume it wasn't in my interests. So um, to combat that presumption, the statutes allow us to adopt a procedure for disclosures, and our code includes that. So in every quasi-judicial hearing, we go through our ex parte disclosures. If you have had verbal communications, then during the hearing, you should announce the substance of all discussions and the identity of all participants. So if you have any meetings with others, or if others reach out to you, they leave you a voicemail. Even if you don't communicate back with them, if you receive that information, then there's been an ex parte communication. You will want to note all of the relevant information, the date, who you talked to, and what you talked about. And it's probably not going to be sufficient to say, oh, we talked about this item. Okay, well, if I'm the party who wasn't privy to that conversation, I mean, what did you talk about? To say you talked about this item, it doesn't help involve me anymore, educate me anymore about what you may have, may have heard, so that I can then try to rebut that and give you information that is important to my side of that conversation. So it's very important that you also talk about, uh, uh, disclose the substance of those discussions. Excuse me, city attorney, I, I have a question for the mayor. Do you want us, both of you actually, do you want us to hold questions till the end or ask them as they pop up in the presentation? I have no preference. I defer to you, Mayor White. Maybe as they come up so that we don't lose track of it. Okay, then. About. So you have a question. Yes, I do. Go right in. Um, ex parte is a big fuzzy area for me. And so I really need to understand the intent um, of these um, you know, the rules around this stuff. So how much detail do we really need to, to include in our disclosure of ex parte? Well, the law does not give us good guidance. Not. That. <laughs> that would be too easy. That would be too easy. But the more detail, the better. Because again, what we're trying to combat is the prejudice to the party who was not privy to the communication. 
and a second related question to ex parte. My, my personal practice has been trying to limit my exposure to ex parte. I mean, if, if I see a lot of times we'll get a slew of emails, say the day before a topic is coming before us. If it's clear to me what the topic is, I often don't read those emails. Is that the intention? So what are we really trying to do here? Is it, is it to limit that kind of input into our decision-making or to absorb it and report it? Well, let's, let's talk about that and then we'll come back to the disclosure process. Okay. Having ex parte communications is not illegal. I cannot tell you not to do it. Right. Um, there, there is nothing in the law that prohibits you from doing it. However, I strongly recommend that you don't mm-hmm. for several reasons. Number one, your role in this proceeding is to be the decision maker, not to be the investigator. Mm-hmm. And the parties have a duty to bring you the information that you need. So a party who is seeking relief, who is applying for something and asking you for something, bears the burden of giving you what you need to make a complete decision. And likewise, the city party who's making a recommendation on this application bears the burden of bringing you what you need to make a decision on this item. Um, It is not inherent in your role to go out and try to find that or for the parties to bring that to you outside of the public hearing and, you know, essentially behind closed doors. So um, additionally, it can cause potential legal challenges. A a party can argue that they were denied due process and cross-examining the witnesses or refuting evidence. We have had parties in chambers before who have requested to cross-examine a commissioner about their ex parte disclosures and ex parte communications. And I don't think, it's my opinion that they don't have the right to do that, but I don't think that any of you want to be in a situation where someone even wants to cross-examine you, meaning asking you questions, um, you know, as part of testimony about what you did or didn't talk about with another party to the proceeding. Um, They can also argue that a board member is not fair and impartial. Remember our earlier slide right, where we want you to remain fair and impartial, that is key. So a party can argue that either you are not fair and impartial, and maybe that's true or not, or that you don't have the appearance of being fair and impartial because you received all this information outside of the official hearing where everyone had gathered together for the exchange of information. So if you can avoid ex parte communications, then we even avoid having to deal with these arguments even if the arguments would be unsuccessful. Because as you all know, um, anyone can sue. As long as they can make an argument, they can file an appeal and sue in the court system. And ultimately down the road, the court may not find the argument to be persuasive and we may win on that argument, but we then have to deal with it and incur the time and money um, that it takes to process it. Finally, I would say another reason that I would encourage you to try not to engage in ex parte is that the applicants and the residents have their best opportunity to reach the board in this room during the public hearing. So certainly, I I know that it it puts an elected official in a difficult situation when they have a constituent come forward and say, hey, I want to talk to you about something that is really important 
to me, and that topic happens to be a quasi-judicial item. But I would encourage you to encourage them to come before the board in the hearing and to give public comment, or if they really feel inclined, they can email the entire board their position, <clears throat> and that way they have access to everyone on the board. You all can hear it, all five of you, and the other participants to the hearing can also hear their perspective and their point of view. That's a much more powerful forum than just a one-on-one -on -one conversation when they run into you at the coffee shop, mm -hmm. for example. So to the extent that you can limit the ex parte communication, that makes our, our legal position stronger or helps us avoid some potential legal arguments. Now, realistically, even if you're not seeking out ex parte communication, I know that it comes to you, like the emails that you mentioned, uh, Commissioner Langdon. And all I can say is, you know, that is what it is. But if you do not engage with the email, or if you simply write back to say, you know, thank you, I've received your message, I encourage you, you know, to attend the hearing, you know, then at least you've limited your participation. You will still have to disclose it. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Amber. Do, are there, before I go back to the process, are there any other questions about conducting ex parte communications and engaging in those? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Vice Mayor Rosen. Yeah, this, this is a, a, a bit ex, extended beyond ex parte, but, you know, public commenters, especially aggrieved parties, get sworn in and Their comments are entered into the public record, um, supposedly or hopefully as factual. Yet, I guess my question goes to, does the governing body, does the judicial body, this commission acting in that capacity, have the ability to ask those aggrieved parties questions as we would an applicant or a member of staff so many times public commenters who are sworn in testify before this body in a quasi-judicial make all kinds of statements. Some of them have interesting backgrounds and knowledge, experience, education. But where does that line run? Do we have the ability to question those people as to you know what their credentials are? You know, is this is it fact? Is it opinion? I mean, a lot of people come before us and give their opinions. That is not necessarily factual, yet it plays into the public record. So, you know, it's a, I guess I'm just looking for clarification there because there, there's been many a time where I would have loved to, like, ask some questions of those aggrieved parties and I've kept my mouth shut and not said anything. And, and again, part of it you, you answered a little when it came to ex parte. And, and, you know, but if you can comment, I mean, I don't know. If you're agreeable, Vice Mayor, I'd like to address that when I get to that <clears throat> portion of the process. Oh, perfect. <clears throat> okay, uh, Commissioner McDowell. Um, this has to do with uh, ex parte. Is there a time limit? So what I mean by that is <clears throat> if a <clears throat> citizen hears of a project years ago, 
and that project was not brought to fruition, but then resurrected as something different. Does my ex parte have to be for the current resurrection or do I have to include the previous rendition? So the law does not provide a time limit, but the ex parte communication should relate to the application before you. Gotcha. Thank so you. if the property had you know, a, a prior anticipated use that is not before you, then that would not be relevant. Okay, thank you. Okay. Okay, so once there has been ex parte communication, what do you do? In step two of our quasi-judicial process, you would disclose that ex parte communication. Again, if it's verbal, you'll want to announce the substance of all discussions and the identity of the participants. If it's written, you forward that in advance to the city clerk and she puts it into our record. Even if you didn't read it, you know, but you received it and you can see what it's about, please go ahead and send that to her. We, more disclosure is always better than less disclosure. Um, there's, I can't, I don't want to say anything absolute because, you know, lawyers don't like to do that, but I cannot think of a situation in which too much disclosure would hurt us, whereas I can think of several in which too little disclosure might become a problem. If you have done any kind of investigation or any kind of site visit, then please announce that during the hearing. Again, it is up to the parties to bring you this information. You should not have the need to go out personally to review a site if there's something on site that is so key to your review there should be photographs or you know drone footage or you know something brought forward to you by the parties to educate you and expose you to that during the quasi-judicial hearing and these considerations we have already addressed on this slide okay so moving on to step three presentations um, in our code, the applicant goes first, followed by city staff, and then followed by aggrieved or adversely affected persons, which we will talk about momentarily. But it is important to note, and this goes in part, Vice Mayor, to your question, that an aggrieved party does have full party status. That is not the same thing as a public commenter. An aggrieved party has the same, has qualified for, and has the same rights before you that the applicant party has and that the city party has. So they are fully participating in every step of this, this process with you know, the rights to have their presentations, their rebuttals, their closing arguments, and with the time limits assigned there too, as opposed to a public commenter who only can speak during public comment for the three minutes. So it is a, it's a heightened status that we'll talk about more momentarily. But under presentations, each party has 20 minutes to provide their presentation. These time limits are key. They are established by the code and they are not flexible. Now on occasion, there has come before you situations in which you have maybe combined two related items into one hearing or you find that the item is more complicated and you want to expand the time. That is something that the board can do. You can give more time, not less time, more time, but I would recommend that only doing so when every party articulates on the record that they agree to it and you have a majority vote by board. Otherwise, you need to stick strictly to our local law, our codified time limits. All right, we have, we have some questions, I think, on that. Uh, Vice Mayor? 
Yes. Is that it? That's it. Okay. Okay. Commissioner Langdon has, has a question too, I think, on that. Yeah. Do we qualify an aggrieved party? Um, it's been my impression that I, I done, the part of the definition of an aggrieved party is someone who is in close proximity to the activity. Um, it came up, mm, I'm probably not going to say that. Um, it, it, it's been my impression that sometimes people who are materially impacted by a situation do not conform to the definition of an <coughs> party because they don't abut. So let's go and ahead and talk about, we'll skip ahead and then come back oh to where gosh. I was to talk about aggrieved parties. Um, the short answer, Commissioner Lane, to your question is, no, we do not qualify aggrieved parties, but under our procedure, we can disqualify them if another party makes an objection. Mm. Those are our current procedures. Those are, those are local, and we can change them. But let me walk through and explain to you what the code currently provides. <clears throat> An aggrieved or adversely affected person is defined as a person that may suffer a negative effect that is greater than the community at large. So it's not just anybody who might suffer an adverse effect. It has to kind of be a specialized enhanced adverse effect. The definition does not include proximity. So it doesn't have, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is, you know, their property is adjacent. It. However, quite commonly, that is who is going to have a greater effect in the community at large, mm -hmm. right? Like the whole area might be impacted, but the people who own property right next to or across the street or behind the property in question are probably going to be impacted more by the noise or the traffic or the stormwater runoff or whatever the, the concern is. So I would say that those are more common, more commonly qualified as aggrieved parties, but that's not a requirement. They just have to have a negative effect that's greater than what the general community is going to potentially suffer. If someone wants to qualify as an aggrieved party, they have to file a written notice with the city clerk by 5 p.m., eight calendar days before the hearing. Calendar. And they only have to file one notice for all the hearings. You know, most of these go through the Planning Zoning Advisory Board and then come before use once, sometimes twice. So one notice covers everything. <clears throat> but they have to get that notice in. Now, once they file that notice, if they've completely filled it out and they filed it on time, then they have qualified as an aggrieved party, right? Because our city clerk can't determine who is or isn't an aggrieved party. She can only determine, have they completed the requirements? Have they provided the information we asked for and have they done it timely? So once they do that, they're in. And they are set as an aggrieved party with these heightened rights akin to the applicant party and the city party. Um, did you have something to Yeah, so take a who is who has the right to challenge? Y'all, I'm going to tell you. It's right here on the okay. next slide. Right. We wait until the presentation's over and then do questions. <clears throat> the board can only review that upon the request of a party. 
So essentially, and we and I do not recall this happening since this is this language was adopted a few years ago. But essentially, in the hearing, a party would raise an objection to say, "I don't believe," and possibly they could even do it in writing prior to the hearing. But it would have to be addressed in the hearing. A party would raise an objection to say, "I don't believe that a grieved party X and Y meet the definition." to qualify as an aggrieved party. I don't believe that they have a heightened you know, level of, of injury that's greater than the general community. When that happens, then it comes to the board to make a determination as to whether or not this party should be an aggrieved party. However, that is not an evidentiary hearing. That is not a question and answer time. You simply review the notice, the written notice that the party has provided and make a determination based off of that document. If the board finds that the party was compliant, then they may proceed. Um, not, not that they were compliant, that they comply with the definition in the code. Then they may proceed as an aggrieved party with the full party rights. If the board finds that they are not in compliance with the code, then they have no party rights. But they can still speak in public comment like any, anyone else can. Um, and the decision relates only to that board's hearing and not to any other hearing on the application. So for example, if this is raised at PZAB level, whatever PZAB decides doesn't bind the city commission proceedings. But that objection could be heard, you know, again before you as a board when it comes before the city commission for approval. Any questions about that? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, so going back to the presentations. The presentation is where each party is going to kind of come before you and essentially give you the detailed gist of their position. And this is where the board begins receiving <coughs> evidence. Evidence may come in the form of testimony which in our quasi-judicial hearings is pretty much anything anybody says, because remember, everyone who's talking has been sworn. It can also come in the form of documentary evidence, evidence that a party has put into the backup, or evidence that a party distributes into the record at the hearing as well. You all must allow all evidence that's relevant. That means evidence that's related to the subject matter of the application, and that shows the potential compliance or non-compliance of that application with the city's existing regulations. <clears throat> you are not required to entertain irrelevant evidence. You know, someone who's talking about an element that's not before you right now for consideration. If it's a, a rezone and they want to talk about what might be in a future in a proposed development master plan, for example. Um, you're also not required to consider immaterial evidence, which is pretty much another way to say irrelevant. And you're not required to take unduly repetitious evidence. You're not required to listen to 100 people come before you and say exactly the same thing. There are other ways to handle the intake of that evidence, you know, besides hearing that repetition over and over and over and over. It's very important that you all know, you've heard before, and you'll hear more today, that your decision must be supported by competent, substantial, 
evidence. Your decision can't just be your opinion. There has to be something in the record that an appellate court could find that is competent, substantial evidence. So when you're looking at the evidence, you must weigh the credibility of the evidence. And this goes in part to your question, Vice Mayor. And that is that just because someone says something doesn't make it accurate. It doesn't make it fact versus opinion. And it doesn't mean that that person has the credentials or the background to support what they are saying or to you know, provide expertise in that area. The, you can look at whether or not the evidence is disputed. You have one person saying one thing and another person saying something that contradicts that. You can also look at whether or not the witness is interested. You know, generally speaking, especially in courts of law, people do not always tell the truth or they sometimes tell their version of a truth that has spin on it in their perspective, right? Because they have an interest. That is some, sometimes some element of human nature, some element of duplicity, depending on how far you go down the spectrum. You can also look at the weight of the evidence. So if you have a public commenter who has no relevant professional experience who is talking about how stormwater runoff is going to be a problem onto their property because of this application, that is a different weight that you would give than if the city's stormwater engineer, who is professionally trained, certified, and licensed, comes before you to talk about how the stormwater will behave under the proposed or the submitted application. Does that make sense? Those are not the same, the same thing. And as the quasi-judicial decision maker, you know, it's up to you to figure out what is credible evidence and where to give that weight. That being said, it is not the quasi-judicial decision maker's role to cross-examine the witnesses. We will talk about questions when we get to the question portion of the process, but you don't get to ask questions until the very, toward the very end of the public <laughs> hearing. Uh, it is the party's job to test that evidence to some extent you know, as well. So if someone is putting an expert forward to talk about an expert topic, and maybe they haven't really established the expertise, it's up to a party to challenge that, to, to bring that to you, to show you that there might be some questions about the credibility or, or the expertise of the person. Some of it is also common sense, right? I mean, a public, and by the way, let's, you know, public commenters can have their own expertise as well. If you have a public commenter who is, you know, a realtor and they talk about their background and then they talk about property values, perhaps they do have the expertise to provide that to you. It's not just about a public commenter versus a city staff professional, but those are examples of, of where you may want to weigh that evidence differently, depending on who is providing it and what their credentials are. Okay, Vice Mayor, did you? Could you, I didn't mean it. I ate the pepper with questions along the way, but I think it's, it's valuable for us. Can you drill down a little on competent, substantial, evidence and because so many times things will come before us that if you look at the totality of the information you know as we try to make decisions on certain things very often in a quasi-judicial uh, we will be faced with making decisions on something that really goes to 
comprehensive plan, ULDC related issues. And the issue of competent substantial evidence is, is important because it, sometimes it's hard to, to, to be able to define that with regard to how we're supposed to make a decision on something. I, I mean, you know where I'm heading because we've had this discussion, you and I, in, in, in our one-on-ones, but can you drill down a little bit on the definition? And, the definition is a bit amorphous. It's Again, it's not going to give you a black and white right. legal guideline, but there does need to be some type of evidence in the record that supports your decision. And again, it would have to be competent. So if your decision is based off of, say, you know, that you're voting to say it's not in the general welfare because of stormwater runoff, and the only and you've had an applicant who comes before you with an engineer who says stormwater runoff is is great, no problem. Here we have a plan, and the city's engineers testified that great, no problem. And you've had one public commenter who says I live next door and I'm worried my property is going to flood, and, and that's the only evidence you have of that. That's that's not going to be competent substantial evidence because that's a member of the public who doesn't have you know, any, any basis or expertise, they're really expressing to you a concern and an unfounded an opinion. opinion. So, you know, you have to look at that credibility and the weight of the evidence and, you know, ensure in your mind that you have heard something from a credible source that supports the commission's decision. And when the, when the appellate court looks at the commission's decision, as you all know, because we've been involved in appeals since you all have been on the board, they're not coming back to rehear the evidence, but they're going to look at the evidentiary record to see, hey, is there anything in the record that supports this? It doesn't mean the, the court has to agree with it. You can have two experts that say two different things. There was one hearing within the last couple of years where you had two different traffic engineers, and one said one thing and one said something completely opposite. Well, which one do you believe? It's not up to the court to tell you A versus B. You guys can decide, oh, I think A is more credible or I think B is more credible because both of those opinions had the proper you know, foundation and support for them. So it's not that there's no discretion there, but you have to have something in the record to support it. And again, it cannot be an opinion. It can't, the decision-making is not about, hey, do I want this? development in the city? Do I think that would be great? No. It's not, oh, do I wish the regulation were different than it is, so I'm going to vote against it even if it meets current regulations? No, nope, you already had your chance to make that determination in the legislative process, and you can do it again for future applications, but this application was already filed under the old regulations. So you have to have that evidentiary basis and background. So that is going to be what you want to listen for to make sure that you have a clean and clear record. Thank you. Okay, so that summarizes the presentation step. The next step in the process is rebuttals. Each party is allowed in a specific order to have a five minute rebuttal. And this is where they can bring forward rebuttal testimony and evidence. So they can come to you and talk to you and, and provide their response to something they heard in the other party's presentations. 
they can also cross-examine. Vaismir, you were asking about cross-examination. This is the place in the process where cross-examination could occur. We haven't seen a lot of that, but it is an option, and under the law, we do need to provide the ability to cross-examine to the parties. So a party could call up a witness who has already testified and cross-examine that witness. They may also, in the rebuttal, <coughs> impeach testimony or evidence that they have heard. Impeach, impeachment is when you go to the credibility. You know, so in other words, we've been talking about an example related to stormwater. They come up and argue, hey, you know, you heard all of these concerns, but all of these concerns were, you know, without basis because of X, Y, and Z, or here is why they are not concerns and how we've addressed them. So rebuttal is a type of response to what they've heard in the 20-minute presentations, and they are each allowed five minutes per party. Then step five is when you get to public comment. Again, your public commenters are speaking to you under oath. That is a very important distinction legally, and we make that distinction here in the room. You all know that. We have our public commenters stand up and say, I have been sworn to get that, you know, that information into our audio record of proceedings. But realistically, the public commenters are just coming to talk to you and likely they're not considering this any different than any other public comment. So, you know, just know that their perspective may not include the level of formality that, that we are applying and that we must apply according to our procedure. The time limits for public comment are three minutes. That may be extended by your vote, but it has to be extended for everyone. You cannot decide in the middle of public comment to give someone extra time, you know, an extra 30 seconds because they're not finished or because what they're saying is of particular interest to you or because you find them particularly credible on the subject matter. If you do that, then we're going to have to go back and give 30 seconds to everyone else who already spoke and the other ones that are yet to come. So this is, you know, one reason why we're so careful about those time limits and the city clerk keeps the clock and our mayor uh, enforces the clock on public comment. We want to make sure that everyone has an equal playing field here. Vice Mayor, you had asked whether the board may ask questions of public commenters, and there is no opportunity for questions during the public comment period. It's simply a time where the public commenters come and give you the information they would like to give you. Now, it's very important to note that only public comment that is taken during the quasi-judicial hearing is considered in your quasi-judicial record. Occasionally, we have public comment. Well, we always have public comment at the top of the meeting, but occasionally you'll hear a public comment at the top of the meeting that relates to your quasi-judicial item, right? Someone will come, they want to say what they have to say, and then get out of here and not hang around. That is not sworn, and that is not part of your quasi-judicial public hearing. You cannot consider that public comment. The city clerk on our um, agendas you know, I don't know how often you've read it, but at the, the top of the agenda, there's a lot, of, a lot of fine print before you get to the items. And you'll see there are references where the city clerk has included language to remind people of that. And occasionally, when I hear that we've had some or substantial public comment at the top, then I will also uh, kind of illuminate my light to say, you know, as a note, during the ex parte, as a note, you guys also heard some public comment at the top of the meeting that does not apply. <coughs> After 
It is only after the presentations and the rebuttal and the public comment that you all get to ask questions. So up until this point in the proceeding, you have been absorbing information. And in step six, as the board, you finally get to ask questions. You may ask questions of any party, any witness, or any person providing public comment. I would recommend, this is not required, but I would recommend that you consider directing your question to a specific party rather than simply saying, I have a question, what about this? If you just say, what about this, then you may have every party in the room try to come up and give you a response. <coughs> and those responses are untimed and it can really prolong your meeting and it may not provide you any additional value. So to the extent that you can, think about what party you might want to answer a question. Not which witness for that party, because it's up to the party to decide who to bring forward to answer the question. So it might be, I have a question for the city, rather than I have a question for the fire chief. Because the city's, you know, the, the um, development services presenter might answer your question in lieu of the fire chief or, you know, whatever. So consider being targeted with your questions. This will kind of help you preserve the duration and the efficacy of your hearing because it's during questions that your hearings become prolonged. Up until now, we have been on time limits, right? Everything is very structured and questions go as long as, as questions go. So if it's a free for all, you may be here a long time and you might start getting repetition that's not helpful to you. Vice Mayor, do you have any other questions about boards? Questions? No, thank you. Okay. Following the question period is the final step of the public hearing, which is closing arguments. Each party has five minutes to provide a closing argument to the board. And usually this is where they sort of tie things up with a bow and address the, you know, any little, any little questions or, or topics that are still remaining in their minds following from the procedure. After closing arguments end, it is time for the board, finally, to take actions. After your questions, a public hearing will be closed and no additional evidence or questions should occur unless you all vote to reopen the public hearing. And there are certain times where that makes sense but those times should be limited and narrow because once you reopen the public hearing, we have to make sure everyone has an equal opportunity to be heard. So I would encourage you to try to make sure that you get everything addressed that you need to get addressed during the public hearing. Once we move to board action, the mayor would entertain motions of the board. You all would deliberate, uh, discuss, debate, and then vote on the motion. Considerations for your board action <clears throat> include which code provisions apply, our city regulations. Again, these applications come before you and the bulk of what you are considering relates to how our regulations apply to these applications. Consider what the facts and the evidence are that have been presented before you, the credible evidence, um, the competent and substantial evidence. Consider whether the application complies 
with the code and with the comp plan. Your motion should include a finding of facts or a lack of facts. It should include an approval or a denial of an application. We give you st standard motions for every quasi-judicial action that you take. The city attorney's office has drafted these motions with the input of at least two attorneys looking at the code regulations and the statutory regulations. So they have been very carefully crafted. And this is why when we're in the meetings, I really encourage you to follow those motions. They are often cumbersome, which I understand, and that is in part because our code is cumbersome. But they do dot the I's and cross the T's with respect to what is required by the code. With respect to findings of facts, when you have ordinances and resolutions before you, those also include findings of facts. You will see that there is a section called findings. It's typically section one. It typically incorporates all of the recitals, those whereas clauses from the document. And then it also may have some additional findings as well. Those are all considered part of your action. So we don't restate those in the motion. So if you ever wonder, hey, I'm adopting an ordinance that relates to a land use application, you know, why does the motion not say that it complies with the comp plan? That's already a finding of fact in the ordinance. That's already set forth for you. So you don't have to say it again in the motion language. Um, so you know, your action encompasses everything that's in those documents, the resolutions and ordinances as well. And those, again, have gone through legal review. Although we do not, although the city attorney's office does not represent the staff party in the hearing, we do review all resolutions and ordinances pursuant to the city charter before they come to you. Before we talk about appeals, are there any other questions that relate at all to the proceedings? On that one, I'm sorry. Get a question on yeah, that. Yeah, I have a question on that, if I can retain it. What were we just talking about? The emotions. emotions. Oh, so you had mentioned that things that are already in the ordinance we don't have to include in our motion. My question is sometimes um, in a staff report, there's a very long list of um, requirements on the part of the developer, those typically are not in the ordinance. Do we need, is it sufficient for us to say, including all of the requirements on page three of the staff report, or should we read them in total so, into the record? What's your... I, I hear your question. So there are often three types of action that you can take mm -hmm. to approve, to approve with conditions or to deny. And I think what you're referring to is approving with conditions, conditions. where sometimes in the staff report, they will recommend imposing you know, conditions one through 10 on the applicant. Typically, the, often at least, the applicant has agreed to those. And then sometimes during you know, the hearing, they'll say, oh, we don't think numbers three and seven are that important. Mm -hmm. So you know, now you have to craft a motion to insert conditions numbers, numbers one, two, four through six, and eight through 10. Um, as long as the language in the motion is very clear, Commissioner, you don't necessarily have to restate those. Is it a, is it a, a better and cleaner motion if you were to read them aloud? Yes. Does that become a bit 
cumbersome for the chair and the clerk who has to record and restate the motion? Yes. So, you know, I would say that if you're going to do it by reference, that you be very, very clear. You know, approve with the conditions on page 10, with the following conditions on page 10 of the staff report as set forth in the staff report. Condition 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10. Thank you. How does that sound? That's good. Any other questions about the proceedings before we move to appeal? Okay, so what happens after you all do your job? That is not always the end of, uh, of the matter. If an application is denied, the board's counsel drafts an order that's, and serves it on all parties. So typically I draft that order. The order is very straightforward. It addresses, you know, it identifies the application. It identifies the date of the hearing. It identifies the language of your motion and then it apprises the parties of their appellate rights pursuant to our code. So there's nothing, there's no discretion that I add to that. It's simply a mechanism of communication. I serve that on the other, on the parties, and that would include the grieved parties because here, again, they have those same rights, and those parties have 30 days to file an appeal in the court system. There are three general bases to appeal a quasi-judicial decision. Um, one is an argument that a party, any of the parties, typically the applicant, but any party, was deprived of due process. We talked about due process, right? Due process is this procedure that we put forward in our code. Did we follow it properly or not? The second is a lack of a fair and impartial decision maker. This is why it's so important that everyone on the panel actually be fair and impartial, and then also to to the extent you can control it, that you appear fair and impartial. Because even if you feel fair and impartial, but something has occurred where someone could argue that you weren't, I mean, they could make an appeal and, and then we could see whether or not their argument has merit. And the third is a lack of competent and substantial evidence to support the decision. So what is the role of the board's legal counsel? Every one of our boards sitting in a quasi-judicial capacity has legal counsel from the city attorney's office present. We are there to advise the board not to provide testimony. You will not hear us chime in and weigh in on the application. And we are not there to advise city staff. We are there to advise the quasi-judicial decision makers during the quasi-judicial hearing. That can include answering or addressing procedural questions and issues, handling general legal questions that don't involve actually applying the regulations to this application. Um, when city staff does need legal counsel specifically to help them, the city attorney's office practice is to retain conflict counsel to represent staff. Again, we review all official documents of the board, including your ordinances and resolutions, and we do draft those suggested quasi judicial motions. Most importantly, uh, you have noted and will continue to note that your legal counsel may interrupt your proceedings at times. Right? We, we buzz in for the mayor to see us and sometimes because things are moving so quickly, 
there's not time to be recognized, and we just interject, you know, Mayor, I, you know, I'd like to say something. And I, I want to make sure that you all know that we don't do that to as a lack of decorum or because we underestimate the importance of being recognized by the chair. But we do that to preserve your record. So the record that goes up to the appellate court is the audio recording of these proceedings. So if there's anything that we hear that might interfere with that audio recording, whether it's crosstalk, whether it's a failure for someone to state they've been sworn um, or to state their name or some, you know, then we're going to interject. If someone is out of order on the procedure, then we are also going to interject because we want to help you maintain due process for your parties. So at, at times I know that that can seem maybe a bit overbearing, but the intent is always to protect the city, to protect the record, and to protect process and the rights of the parties so that when you do complete your decision making, it is final. And hopefully, not only is there no basis for a successful appeal, but hopefully no basis for an appeal at all. That concludes the prepared presentation. I'll be happy to answer any additional questions that you may have. Okay, here we go. Um, Anybody have any questions? Did a great job. Thank, Thank you. you. I, I just had a question. Um, if, if something is denied due to lack of substantiated evidence, does that have to be noted what that evidence is? Can you clarify that again? Yes, so you do want to identify the basis for the denial. And you will see for every different type of application that comes before you, mm -hmm. there's a different proposed motion, right. you know, an approval and denial motions, you know, in your in your backup material, not your backup materials, mm -hmm. but in your script for the meeting. And so you will see on that denial that quite often there's like a there's a checklist to say it does Options. not meet, okay. and then you have to choose the items it does right. not meet. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that. <clears throat> any any questions from the board here? Not seeing anything on the screen. All right. Thank you all for your time. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, do we have any public comment on that? All right. So that is it. So it is 1144. Gee, good job. And I adjourn this meeting.